0: You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Great, so we're, we're closing out today a series that we have been in since the beginning of this year, 2023. Um, you know, it's uh, been a series on faith, not just kind of untitled, talking about what faith is and what it isn't, and it's been uh, stretching and challenging. I've given you a lot to consider, a lot to think about and meditate on, and I hope that it's something here has taken root for you. We've gotten a, a good amount of feedback on this, and it seems like uh, for many people this series has resonated, which I'm grateful for. But we're going to close out the series today, and the title of my sermon is Trusting God for What? Trusting God for what? And my text is going to be the classic memory verse that every church kid probably had to memorize at some point in your life. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So we're going to put this on the screen. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And uh, let's go ahead and read it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Go ahead. Yeah. And do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge Him and he will make straight your paths. All right, I want to begin this sermon today in a way that I almost never begin sermons. I want to begin by telling a joke. You're supposed to laugh at the end, but that's all right. Um, But I almost never do this, and and just just because it's uh, it's not a gratuitous joke. It has to do with the content of the sermon. Uh, chances are, many of you in the room, you have probably at some point heard this joke, at least a version of it, and uh, if you have, just pretend like you've never heard it and give me a courtesy laugh at the end. That would be great. Thank you, Mike. Mike's on top of it. Who was that? Dave, all right. Dave Corletta, great. All right, thank you. I'm counting on you, Dave. All right, here we go. So there was a guy who lived in a, a particular town town of a few thousand people, and and there happened to be a river that ran through this town. And one particular weekend, there was this huge rainstorm, thunderstorm, that passed through this area, and it dumped like 10, 15 inches of rain in one weekend, just an insane amount of rain. In fact, the river, which was already at a high level could not handle the amount of rain that was being drained into it, and it eventually overtopped the levee that was protecting the town, and actually the levee failed. So now, not only is all this rain getting dumped on the town from the sky, but now the river is pouring into the town as well, and it's beginning to flood the city very rapidly. Well, so many people in the town were in a panic. They were worried. They were afraid, um, you know, just panicking and, and grabbing as many valuables as they could from their house and getting into their car and, and driving off in order to escape the flood. But this one particular guy, you know, he fancied himself as a very mature believer and, and look at all these people panicking, afraid. I'm confident in God and I'm trusting that God's going to protect me. I'm not going to be afraid. I have no fear, you know. My fear doesn't stand a chance, you know, <laughs> So we just say. <laughs> so, so he's praying. He said, God, all these people are afraid. I'm trusting in you. I'm standing on your promises, and I'm, I know you're going to protect me. The flood begins to rise, and it actually begins filling people's homes, and he's standing in his home, and now the, the water's like waist deep. So he swims out, and he climbs onto the roof of his house, and the, the waters continue to rise. About that time, a woman comes rowing in a boat down the street, and she spots the man on the house, and she says, Sir, I have room in my boat. Come get into the boat, and I'll take you to safety. And he said, No, ma'am, my trust is not in rowboats. My trust is in the name of the Lord my God. And she shrugged her shoulders and kept going. Water continues to rise. Now it reaches the uh, perimeter of the roof. The entire, all of the walls are now submerged underwater. And about that time, a motorboat comes by with a few people in it, and they see the guy, and they shout out to him, Sir, come swim to us. We have room in the boat. We have room for one more. We'll save you. We'll rescue you. He says, My trust is not in motorboats or in the ways of human beings. My trust is in the name of the Lord my God. They shake their heads and keep going. A little while later, now he's standing on the highest point of his roof, and the water's at his ankles. And a helicopter passes by, and a spotter, Sees the man and, and they hover over him and they throw a ladder down and he's got a megaphone and he shouts down to the man, "Please, sir, grab the ladder. You only have a few moments. We'll save you. We'll bring you to dry ground." And he just makes a big motion. No, my trust is in the name of the Lord, my God. So the helicopter keeps going and then shortly after the water is at such a high level that uh, he's not—he's got nothing to stand on, nothing to cling to—and eventually he gets exhausted and he drowns in the flood. very next moment, he's standing in heaven before God, and he said, God, what's the deal? I was trusting you to protect me. I was confident in your protection. Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent a rowboat. I sent a motorboat. I sent a helicopter. What more do you want? Oh, thank you. So, One of the themes of this series that I've been kind of hammering every single week is biblical trust is not a psychological gimmick in your brain. Biblical trust is about covenantal relationship. It's a trust-based, faith is not psychological gimmickry, faith is relational trust, covenantal trust. When a bride and a groom say yes and they pledge themselves to one another, that's an earthly picture of what biblical faith is. It's not self-absorbed, it's oriented around the other. I am pledging myself to you. And they are pledging themselves really in two ways. You can narrow it down to two things. What are they pledging themselves to? Two things. Number one, they are pledging to trust one another, to live a life of trust in one another. And number two, they're pledging to walk trustworthily before one another. I'm going to live faithfully before you. So it amounts to those two things. This is what a biblical, faithful relationship with God looks like, is number one, it means we're pledging to walk trustworthily before God. And I think we all have a general understanding of what that looks like. It means we're going to live in such a way with God's help that we, we, we live out his values and his heart. We allow God to produce within us the character of Christ. So we're gonna walk faithfully before God. That's the first thing that our covenant with God entails is walking trustworthily before him. It's the second thing that I think confuses a lot of people and this is what we're gonna focus on today is what is God's end of the covenant? Like we know what we're pledging to do, but when God is pledging himself to us, what are the terms of the covenant from his perspective? In other words, what are we to trust God for? It's very important that we have clarity on that. If we don't, it can actually harm us in a lot of ways. And I'll describe that in a moment. But it's an important question. Um, What do we mean when we say that we're trusting God? What are we trusting him for? Just to kind of get your wheels turning a little bit, let me give you a few scenarios, just to kind of wrap your mind around it. Many of us in this room, we believe we ought to trust God for protection. We pray for protection. We trust God for protection. But I'm also betting that most of you lock your doors at night. What's the matter? Don't trust God? You know? Others of you, you may even have security cameras, security systems in your home. I'm not against those things at all. I'm not saying you shouldn't have those things. But I think, I think it's worth thinking about, okay, what does it mean to trust God for protection and at the, at the same time also take these measures? How does our trust in God enflesh its way into our life? We, we talk about trusting God for provision and protection, but I'm guessing that a lot of you, like myself, have insurance policies of various kinds. If you can afford it, you might have retirement funds. So what does it mean to put our trust in God and at the same time make these other arrangements as well? How does that work its way out in, in our actual actions that makes it distinct from even if we were not a believer? Uh, we, we believe in praying and trusting for God trusting God for provision. Part of the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We, we trust God for provision and yet I'm guessing most of you work for a living or at least you depend on somebody who works for a living. So it's, if you think about it, our lives reveal that we understand that trusting God for provision doesn't mean we should expect God to throw down meat and vegetables from the sky or something. We understand that There are other variables at play that can affect the outcome of things. And trusting God for provision in and of itself doesn't guarantee a particular outcome. There are also other things involved, including in these scenarios, our own participation and engagement. There are other variables at play. So what are we trusting God for and what are the terms of the covenant? It's an important question because I've known people who have gotten burned because they misunderstood the terms of the covenant. And they were trusting God for promises that I don't think were ever actually promised to them. So that when it, actually, when it didn't come about, they felt betrayed by God, and it wrecked their faith. I know of a guy who um, he said, you know, I, I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. And then a look of anger came over his face and he said but I'll never trust him again. I'll never trust him again. And it's like why? And it turns out several years earlier he had lost his oldest son to this terminal disease. And he was just talking about how uh, how much of a wonderful young man he was and how unjust it was that his son was taken by this disease. This man apparently believed that what he was signing up for when he pledged himself to Christ is that God would always be faithful protecting his kids so that when that didn't happen, now he got angry at God. There's a lot of people that are in that kind of position, and it can really mess mess with their faith. You know, it's a scary world, and it'd be wonderful if we all had this magical formula that if I just hold on to these things, if I just believe these things, then... um, God will always protect me and my kids from any kind of harm, and he'll always provide for us, and nothing harmful will happen to us. And unfortunately, there are preachers and there are book authors who will affirm that idea and give fuel to that faith, to that idea. But unfortunately, they're never around to pick up the pieces when that house of cards inevitably collapses. So, this is something I think we just need to be really honest and clear about. What are the terms of our covenant with the Lord? And I promise you, by the end of this message, you'll have a little more clarity. I know that what I'm sharing so far might be a little unsettling to you. By the end of this sermon, just stick around, you'll you'll have a much firmer grasp of this. But the other thing that happens is is that when you hold on to this idea, this belief that what it means for me to have faith is that now God's going to protect me and provide for me and my kids, and my kids are never going to be harmed is that now, in order to keep that bubble intact, now I have to indict anyone who's ever gone through a nightmarish situation. In order to stave off the the cognitive dissonance and make myself feel comfortable and protected, well, anybody I see that is going through a horrific disaster, I have to say to myself, well, it's probably because they had a lack of faith. It's a sign of a lack of faith on their part. And there are many people who who will say things like that. I don't think we want to go there. Some of you remember um, just a few years ago, there was this horrible earthquake in Haiti. Remember this? A few years ago, a a terrible earthquake in the nation of Haiti that devastated Port-au-Prince and the surrounding areas. And just like that, overnight, a million and a half people displaced from their homes. 300,000 people dead, many of them buried alive under the rubble. Just devastating. And within a couple days, finally, the um, major news networks were able to get some crews down there, and um, they were able to send cameras and reporters and and begin to document the tragedy, the disaster that had taken place. And I remember watching one of these networks, and they were showing their footage uh, live. And it was at night. And they were there in Port-au-Prince, and they were in a particular area of the city, this big, massive open area that had become a tent city where over a million people were living, in absolute squalor, some of the worst conditions you can imagine. They were just covered in rubble. These are people who they had no insurance, and now they have no homes. They don't know where the next drink of water is going to come from, let alone where their next meal is going to come from. Probably most, if not all of them, still had loved ones that had not been accounted for maybe buried in rubble somewhere. It's just a nightmare of nightmares. It doesn't get any worse. And yet they're filming, and they found these precious people, these these Haitian people, and they were singing together. They were singing a song. And the reporter found um, this interpreter, a Haitian interpreter, and asked them, what are they singing about? And the interpreter said they're singing that our God is a faithful God. He's our refuge and our strength and our help in the time of trouble. That's what they're singing. It's just like one of the most beautiful and paradoxical things you could ever witness. The last thing you would want to say about these people is that they lacked faith. These are the most faithful people on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. I can't even fathom that level of faith. Trusting God for provision when there is no provision, and yet they're praising God. But again, it calls to mind this question, what are you trusting God for? What is the cash value of this faith that we have? I heard a story, uh, I, just to preface this, it's a true story, but I have no clue who the people are involved. I don't know anything about them. I only know uh, the professor who shared the story. So if you're wondering, who is he talking about? I promise you, you don't know who I'm talking about because I don't know who I'm talking about there was um, a young lady who was a missionary's kid. Her mom and dad were missionaries somewhere in Latin America. I don't even know where. Um, But they were stationed out there and, and, and they were working with other missionaries, other missionary families under the umbrella of a missionary organization. And at some point when this girl was nine years old, she was sexually molested by another missionary. And when the organization found out about it, they just kind of slapped the guy on the wrist and transferred him to a different area. And she was just told, listen, we just have to forgive when good people do bad things, uh, but we don't need to talk about this anymore. And that was it. Hush, hush, under the rug. That was it. Fast forward 10 years, she's now a 19-year-old Bible college student. And after one of her classes, she went to her professor and um, it was just her and the professor, and, and she, she just was troubled. And she, she said to him, um, I'm having a hard time trusting God. I, I, and she was really beating herself up. She had a tendency to do that, just beating herself up over things. And she said, I just don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't have a hard time trusting God. I have all my other friends here, and boy, it just seems like they're all confident in God, and, and they have such exuberance and passion and trust in the Lord. But I'm struggling with that, and I don't know what's wrong with me. And he was like, well, what are you trying to trust God for? And she was kind of puzzled at first because she felt like, well, maybe that should be obvious. But she said, well, you know, like just trusting God to take care of me, trusting God to provide a godly husband for me, which is kind of at the top of every Bible college student's list, finding a spouse. (laughs) Trusting God to give me a wonderful family someday, trusting God to provide and, and to protect me. And as soon as she said, protect, he said, wait a minute, because he knew her backstory." And he said, you mean like trusting God to protect you from sexual molestation and exploitation and that kind of thing? You might want to cut yourself some slack on that one. But see, she had grown up with this mentality, this idea that if I just walk with the Lord, then those kinds of things, God protects and, he's, and no harm could come to me. He's going to prosper me, not harm me. And yet this horrible thing happened to her when she was nine years old, and now she didn't have a framework for how to make sense of that and understand it. And yet, she's told she also needs to put her trust in the Lord. And so she's trying to, how do I handle all this? Now, some people, their way of dealing with it is just to walk away from it and say, I'm done with God. For her, her way of dealing with it was beating herself up. Come on, what's wrong with me? I got to trust God. Why am I not trusting God? And thankfully, I think this professor was able to give her some heaven-sent wisdom and help her through all of this. But see, this is why we've got to be very clear about the terms of our covenant. What are we trusting God for? Because if we don't have clarity on that and wisdom on that, it can come back to bite us later on. You understand what I'm saying? I know this is heavy, but I'm trying to help you through this. I think I'm giving you a, a wiser perspective on how to deal with this. One of the verses I think that sometimes can mess people up a little bit because they misunderstand it is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Go ahead and put it on the screen. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I have preached on this verse I can't tell you how many times in the past and it was a great sermon. It was just wrong. (laughs) It was just wrong. And I since have grown to understand what's happening here. And, and I want to share a, a perspective of Jeremiah 29 11 that I think is much healthier for us. But a lot of times people quote this verse on an island. And God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. When you read that verse, needle pointed onto a pillow by itself, It's like, there you go. There's a promise I can stand on. If I just walk with the Lord, nothing harmful will happen. God will prosper me. I'll have hope in the future. I want to say two things about this. Number one, and I said this a few weeks ago, always look at the context. you got to look at the context of any passage, any verse of the Bible. Otherwise, you can twist it to mean whatever you want it to mean. And in this case, what's happening is if you just go back one verse before, verse 10, you'll see that this is a particular promise that God gave to Israel at a specific time in their history, just before they're going to be carried away to Babylon. The nation of Judah is about to be destroyed by Babylon, and they're going to bring uh, Judah captive into Babylon. And God's saying, here's why this is happening. I have warned you time and time and time again. I've sent prophet after prophet. Turn from idolatry. Turn from immorality. Turn from injustice. Turn from violence. And you have failed to listen. You have not turned. And so now it appears the only way you might possibly turn is if I lift my hand of protection and I allow the Babylonians to come in. And that's what's going to happen to you, Judah. Babylon's going to come destroy Jerusalem and they're going to carry the survivors captive. But God says it's going to be temporary. Because after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to the land. Here's why. And this is where verse 11 comes in. For I know the plans I have for you. I'm not done with you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. In other words, this is just temporary. Plans to give you a hope and a future in this land. So we've got to be very careful that we don't take this specific promise given to Israel at a particular time in their history and rip it out and apply it to ourselves as 21st-century individual people, how we want to see it. Especially because we're talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Watch this. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament times, very early on, we have to understand God is dealing with ancient Bronze Age people who are morally primitive in every way. They are like moral toddlers, moral infants. All they know around them is paganism. All they know is polygamy. All they know is war as a way of life. They had, did you know they had seasons for war? Like we have summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring. They had summer, fall, winter, and war. <laughs> oh, it's war season. Let's go. The groundhog appeared. We have six more months of war. This is what God's dealing with, and he has to stoop down on their level and deal with them where they are and gradually, slowly bring them forward. Just like you as a parent, how many of you have raised infants and toddlers before? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to stoop down on their level and deal with them in a way that they can understand. If you obey, I'm going to give you a cookie. If you disobey, you're not going to get a cookie, right? So God, when he's dealing with ancient Israel, he gives them sort of a toddler system of rewards and punishments, and it was immediate. Israel, if you walk with me, I'm going to bless you and things will go well for you. If you do not walk with me, if you continue in immorality, injustice, idolatry, the three eyes then I'm going to have to eventually lift my hand of protection and these enemy nations are going to come in and decimate you. So he's dealing with them in a way they can understand, bringing them forward. And then finally, when God sends his son, the light of the world, into the world, now we're able to see a much fuller, more complete picture of who God is and what God is up to in the world. And we're no longer under this immediate system of rewards and punishments. That's why in the New Testament, sometimes you read things that sound the exact opposite of Jeremiah 29.11. So, for example, look at this verse in John 16, verse 33. Here's a promise you can stand on. (laughs) Um, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Hallelujah. I'm standing on the promise of God. In this world I will have trouble. Here's another promise, though. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So who is he talking to? He's talking to disciples. He's talking to men who in a short period of time, they're going to be beaten whipped, maligned, imprisoned, tortured, and killed in some of the most brutal, barbaric ways we can possibly imagine. This is no longer the toddler system of immediate rewards and punishments. Hey, if you just walk with me, you're going to live a long, happy, wonderful, prosperous life. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Guys, if you follow me, if you walk with me, take up your cross. You're going to live a very short life, and you will, you will experience exquisite pain. Stand on that promise. But promise number two, don't be afraid because I'm going to supply you with a supernatural peace that will carry you through the troubles because, fear not, I have overcome the world. So be very careful about yanking verses out of the Old Testament and applying it to this day. The other thing is this. Here's the second thing, and I want us to look again at Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans. They're plans. But listen, a plan is not a script. A plan is an intention. That's what God's saying. I know my intentions towards you. The Super Bowl is next week. One of the quarterbacks that's going to play in the Super Bowl next week is Pat Mahomes. Unreal talent. Incredible. And one of the things about Pat Mahomes is that he will receive the design of the play from his coach. The, play will, the coach will give him the plan for the play, but in the midst of the play, if something goes wrong, if something interferes with the plan, he can go off script and make something out of nothing. That's one of the things that makes him amazing. What God is saying to Judah here is, he's saying, here are my intentions. He's not saying, here would absolutely has to, here's what absolutely has to happen to you. He says, this is my intentions for you. But as we know from the story of the Bible and even from our own lives, sometimes God's intentions in his vision isn't always carried out. Why? Because our plans get in the way. We, in our disobedience messes it up. And even we learn from Scripture that there are spiritual beings as well in some mysterious way. They can also complicate things as well as we learn in like Daniel 10 and and many other places. So God's saying, here are my plans, here are my intentions for you. But it's not a script. Even this plan that he's talking about in Jeremiah 29, 11 didn't exactly pan out the way God envisioned Think about it. He says, listen, I'm going to bring you out of Babylon, which happened. But this whole thing about prospering you and nothing harming you and giving you hope and a future in this land, it didn't turn out that way because they were still under this immediate system of rewards and punishments. So within 150 years, they're going to be back under domination by the Greeks. Shortly after that, they're going to be back under the thumb of the Romans. And in 70 AD, they're going to be obliterated. And Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Not one stone upon another, Jesus will later predict. So a plan is not a script. What happened to Jeremiah 29, 11? A plan is not a script. Listen, this young girl who was sexually molested on the mission field when she was nine years old, we've got to get clear on this. This was not part of God's plan for her life. God doesn't plan that sort of thing. Demons plan that kind of thing. Human beings plan that kind of thing. Sick missionaries plan that kind of thing. God doesn't plan that kind of thing. But we also need to know this. Even though God, not everything that happens to me is part of God's plan for my life, the infinitely wise God has a plan for everything that happens. So on one hand, I don't want to blame God for the crud that I experience in my life. But at the same time, we need to recognize that God is an artist. And with infinite creativity, he can take anything and everything you go through, if you'll let him, and bring purpose to it and make something beautiful out of it. Praise God. But a plan is not a script. A plan is an intention. So finally, conclusion. Now we're back at square one. What are we to trust God for? What can we trust God for? And in conclusion, real quickly, I want to give you two things that you can take to the bank. Two things that you can build your house of faith on. These are rock-solid truths. Number one, we are to trust that God is never less than perfectly good and perfectly loving towards us. Period end of sentence, end of paragraph. God's orientation towards you is always pure goodness and pure love. But Ryan, what about? There are no whatabouts. There are no whatabouts. Sometimes I hear people in response might say, well, yeah, but isn't God also a God of holiness and a God of judgment? Of course he is. I mean, read your Bible. You can't escape that. God is a God of judgment. But the fact that people bring that point up reveals that they think God's judgment and holiness is somehow in tension with God's love, as if these are two sides of God's personality. Even God's holiness, God's judgment, God's wrath flows out of his love. That's what he's doing with Judah here in Jeremiah 29. God's telling them, judgment's coming. I'm lifting my hand, Babylon's coming in. This is nothing less than judgment. But what motivates the judgment is God's care and concern for his people. It's no different than you. If you had a, an adult son or an adult daughter, and let's say they were steeped in addiction. They're addicted to meth. They're addicted to opioids. And as a parent, you've done everything you know to do. You've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed. You're going to continue to pray. You've staged interventions. You've pleaded with them. You have funded their rehab. You've sent them to programs. You've sent them to therapy. You've done everything you know to do. And it still won't change. They still won't turn. And there comes a point, there can come a point, as a loving dad, as a loving mom, where you say, the only thing I can do out of my love is lift my hand now. And I've got to, I have no choice. I've got to allow you to experience the natural organic consequences of your choices because this might be the only way you can learn. And it's, you say it and you do it with profound grief and sorrow in your heart. But what motivates you? Love. That's what God's doing with Judah here. Judah, I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet. I've warned you, I've warned you, you won't listen. So I have no choice now to lift my hand and I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come and do what they already want to do. I've been holding them back, but now I'm going to let them come, because you've got to learn. But he does so out of his love. You've heard me say this a billion times, and you're getting sick of it probably. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father's character to us. If you want to know God's disposition towards you, gaze upon the beauty of Christ with his arms outstretched on the cross, praying over his very executioner's father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's God's heart towards you. So whatever you may be going through, no matter how painful it is, no matter how how excruciating is, no matter how nightmarish it is, you've got to trust God is for you. God is on your side and he is at work minimizing as much evil as possible, maximizing the good, but God will never leave you or forsake you. He is on your side working for your good. In this world, you're going to have some trouble, especially if you follow Jesus. You're going to have some pain. You're going to have some chaos, but if you're looking with eyes of faith and if you're trusting in God's character, you will find a peace. How many of you know that peace I'm talking about? You can testify. You've been through some messes in your life. There will be a peace that will sustain you through all of that. Why? Because fear not, I've overcome the world. And, and, and that leads to my second point in just a moment. But that's the first thing. Trust that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. I hate cliches, but that's one I would put on the back of my car. Trust that God is never less than perfectly loving and perfectly good. And then finally, the second thing. Daniel, would you come? Just Daniel. Number two, and you can take this to the bank, trust that God wins in the end. That's the vision and the hope of the New Testament. We live in a world that is profoundly broken and shattered and messed up in so many different ways. But the promise of God and the core of New Testament faith is that it won't always be like this. We live in a word-torn world where sometimes earthquakes happen that can decimate an entire population of people. But the promise of God is that it won't always be like this. We live in the kind of world where a nine-year-old girl can be sexually molested on the mission field. But the promise of God is that it won't always be like this. We live in the kind of world where sometimes people can let you down. Your body can let you down. Cancer can strike. Your kids can disappoint you. Horrible, Horrible things can be done by you and to you. And sometimes this world can just look like an absolute hellhole. And even though God is always at work in all things, trying to bring as much good out of evil as possible, it's a world of incredible, unfathomable pain and ugliness and darkness. But the promise of God is that it will not always be like this. There's coming a time, there's coming a day when everything about this world that is not consistent with God's vision and God's character is gonna be cut off and eliminated forever. And everything that is consistent with God's character and God's vision is gonna be beautified and refined and perfected and eternalized. All war, gone. All division, gone. All hatred, gone. All sickness and disease, gone. All sin and atrocities, gone. everything's going to be consistent with god's character and perfect unity under his son jesus christ and so roll that vision in your mind that's what faith is ask god to give you a holy imagination of what one day can be and will be and our task at village is to have that shared imagination and to begin moving together in that trajectory as a preview the coming attraction giving the world a glimpse of what that world one day will be when all is made right and until then trust that God is never less than perfectly good and perfectly loving and trust that ultimately God wins in the end amen stand with me thank you for listening to today's message to learn more about Village Church visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org